0: Thank you to Wildcare and Wildlife Acoustics for sponsoring the Bat Chat podcast. Can you hear that? We can. Wildlife Acoustics creates the world's leading bat acoustic monitoring tools designed to help scientists make impactful discoveries for our biologically diverse planet, turning this into this. Visit wildlifeacoustics.com to learn more. Wildcare are committed to supporting the ecology industry and are specialists in supplying a large range of monitoring, conservation and habitat management products, as well as equipment hire and service and repair. With a large range of products coupled with friendly and expert help and advice, Wildcare is a favourite supplier for ecologists nationwide. Go to wildcare.co.uk to see the full range and quote BatChat at the checkout for 10% off all bat detectors and bat boxes. Hello, and welcome to Bat Chat, the podcast from the Bat Conservation Trust, where we're talking to both experts and local heroes to bring you the stories from the bat conservation movement. Thanks for downloading this week's episode. We hope you enjoy it. I'm Steve Rowe, and we're halfway through this series of Bat Chat. Now, last year, before we'd even heard of the word coronavirus, the world was a very different place, with conferences taking place in person and people enjoying networking with each other to learn of the latest studies and conservation work being done with our bat species. One such conference which takes place each year is the Scottish Back Conference, which last took place in Perth last November, and in this episode we have three guests from that event. On the day of the conference, I spoke with Sue Swift, who wrote the infamous monograph on long-eared bats, which, despite being published in 1998, is still in high demand, and with Tracy Jolliffe, who is a rehabber of poorly bats, but also has a keen interest in zoonotic and anthropogenic infections. But before that, on the eve of the conference, I caught up with the Bat Conservation Trust's Scottish bat officer, Liz Ferrell, who had been spending the afternoon getting things ready in the conference centre, ready for the following day. So it's yeah. the day before the Scottish Bat Conference and I'm sat in a bar relaxing <laughs> <laughs> with the Scottish Bat Officer and a load of other BCT staff. Oh, goodness. Uh, Liz, how long have you been the Scottish Bat Officer for BCT? It sounds like
1: I've been the Scottish Officer too long in a bar. It, sound, <laughs> it sounds a bit wrong here. No, it's all all above board. Um, I've been the Scottish Officer um, for over just over two years now so started in uh, July 2017
0: and um, what was your job background what were you doing before this
1: so I did a degree University of Glasgow zoology um, degree and after that I worked for the Scottish Wildlife Trust um, for for six months um, I then did a bit of consultancy so that was for a year um, and and that was my short history before
0: BCT. <laughs> and why bats? What was it that made you move away from all that stuff and move into bats?
1: Um, there just hasn't really... I mean, I love all wildlife, but when I was on holiday in Wales and I saw a roost emergence, pipistrelle roost emergence, I've just never really felt like that before when I've watched wildlife. They were just swooping right above my head and I just thought, wow, they're really quite magical um, and intriguing, and I just instantly then wanted to learn more about them. Um, and yeah, it's just my kind of—I've just got this fascination with them. Um, they're so intriguing, and there's so much still to learn. It's just, yeah.
0: Um, what does the BCT, oh, Scottish Bat Officer do? What do you get involved with, job-wise?
1: Oh goodness, it's it's very wide-ranging. Um, so, for people that maybe don't know, I'm the only um, employee. Based based in Scotland, so it is a wide ranging role. I I help um, support the Scottish bat groups, so the volunteer groups here in Scotland, whether that be with their own individual projects, whether that be training, for instance, delivering a, a Scottish conference, um, and another. I know the main other part of my role is then working um, with closely with the National Bat Monitoring Program um team down in down in london and and delivering delivering that up here so again giving training to volunteers um so that they can undertake these surveys
0: and you mentioned scottish back groups there how many back groups are there in scotland
1: so putting you on the spot i, should, I know i should know there's there's one that's just gone into hibernation, unfortunately though i'm sure they will kick start at some point in the future so i think at the moment we've now got 11 11 okay. active active groups
0: and why does BST put these regional conferences on?
1: I, there's, I mean, there's, there's a variety of reasons, but the main one is to have some sort of event where bat workers can come together. You know, particularly in in Scotland, you know, where bat workers are so spread apart, um, and it's just nice to have one event in the year where we can kind of all come together, um, catch up but also, you know, learn something about bats. And certainly I've already learnt um, a few things uh, ahead of the conference tomorrow. Obviously I've had a look at a few of the the presentation slides already, cheekily, Um, and I've already learnt some new things. So, yeah, I think it's just bringing people together and actually just sharing uh, some updates on, on bats as well.
0: So how many bat workers from Scotland will come to tomorrow's conference?
1: We have 115 booked on, and that is pretty typical. What's nice... Um, that's a good a good number to have all together.
0: And how much work goes into organising a conference like this?
1: <laughs> so I am quite particular. I do <laughs> keep a really good timesheet, actually, so I can tell you exactly. It's twenty four days of of my time, um, and obviously that is spread across quite a, a few months. So a lot uh, of work then. So yeah, it is it is quite a chunk chunk of my work, yeah.
0: And obviously, we'll be hearing more tomorrow. But is there much about research taking place in Scotland? Because most of it's, you know, upland areas, Highlands,
1: yeah. Yeah. areas
0: like that—it's quite a sparse, barren landscape.
1: Yeah, and you know, if you'd asked me kind of two months ago, oh, you know, there's there's, there's so many so many gaps. But actually, when I dig in to areas, well, I actually find that there has been work done. It's just you know the data storage and actually knowing what has been done—that can be the tricky bit. But no, I mean it. It is a thing. Um, with the area being so remote, population levels being low, there is there is lots of gaps um, across our highlands, but not, not just the highlands, you know, um, other areas as well in Scotland.
0: And a big feature of Scotland is obviously all the islands on the north and the western coasts. What about those islands? Of those ones that have been surveyed, are there bats there or do we really not know that much about them?
1: Yes, yeah, so again, if you'd asked me a year ago, I would have been like, ah, there's been nothing done and I've actually spent a bit of time this summer Um, going to some of the islands and Isla as an example um, Paul Racy had done um, some work on the island before found found out that he'd uh, monitored a a natter's roost um, on the island and actually our islands are really really great for bats from what I can tell um, so far um, some of them have as, as many as six species. Um, obviously, the more far-flung ones <laughs> is, is the hardy common pipistrelle. But, um, but no, there is quite a bit of diversity on there.
0: So presumably, if people are coming to Scotland on holiday, would it be useful to get their records from them?
1: Definitely, yes. You know, we want long-term trends, so repeat sites over and over. Um, that is really important data, but the more ad hoc information is, is still really useful for us. Um, so, yeah, definitely, you know, get, get recording.
0: And how many bat species are present in Scotland?
1: <laughs> so I always say ten. We, uh, Brant's is the the question mark one. Um, there was a single bat dropping sent off for DNA analysis from Galloway Forest, and it came back as, as Brant's... Um, so let's let's say ten. Let's be optimistic. Uh, maybe we just need to do a bit more work and then uh, find out.
0: Um, are there any unusual roosts that are known from Scotland? Anything that stands out?
1: Well, oh goodness, there was a few. I guess the islands again. You know, that's just a personal interest of mine. The one on on Islay is interesting. Nasser's roost, and from the photo I've seen, it's a it's a sizeable roost. Um, <laughs> 50 plus maybe individuals and then I look at the habitat round about and I think oh, it looks quite barren it's quite open um, and I think, goodness, how does they, how do they actually survive um, and then doing some radio tracking work there's then also, you know, 2,000 bats um, in a galloway, someone's house and uh, they've moved out of their own bedroom because they like the bats so much and I think, wow, that was an incredible roost to visit um, you did lose count on that one <laughs>
0: And if there are Scottish residents listening to this who would like to get involved in bat conservation or come along to an event to see what it's all about, where's the best place for them to go and get more information about that?
1: Certainly, um, you know, just look locally at your kind of events page. There's so many activities happening, bat walks happening, and whether it is a bat group or, or you know, it could be your Scottish Wildlife Trust, RSPB. Um, there's bound to be something done locally. and We certainly keep a lot of information on our our website as well of events that we are aware of but certainly first first step is definitely to see if there's a local back group in in your area
0: Cool, good luck for tomorrow
1: (laughs) Oh thank you, thanks
0: So it's the following day and the Scottish conference is well underway and we're in the first coffee break and I've managed to grab a few minutes with Sue Swift and Sue is probably best known for publishing her Monograph on long eared bats, which was published back in one thousand nine hundred and ninety seven so what has your career with bats been? Where have you worked? what have you been involved with over your time as a, as a bat worker?
2: seem to have been at it forever actually um, started back as an undergraduate in one thousand nine hundred and seventy six in Aberdeen when Paul Racy was just getting bat ecology established. Um, I did an undergrad project with him and then we followed that up with the first major field study of ecology and behaviour of bats in, in Scotland and that, that took us three years. Um, we followed that up, I followed that up 30 years as a research fellow on and off in the University of Aberdeen. Um, after the initial study, I really went on to more um, conservation biology type things. I did um, the first study really on the effects of timber treatment chemicals in in bats. We were able to show how damaging things like lindane were and were instrumental in getting um, chemicals based on permethrin to replace them. Um, After that, I did a variation of projects. Um, My favourite one was on how gleaning bats, I've always been fascinated by gleaning bats and how they work, working with a German colleague, uh, we did a project on how these gleaning bats perceive their prey, how they capture their prey, and how their echolocation structure matches with their morphology to allow them to glean. Um, it was absolutely amazing project and also enabled me to ki- keep little um, colonies of natteras and brown long-eared bats in a, in a field uh, a flight room, which I found utterly fascinating. Um, it was a li- beginning of a lifelong love affair with these bats. I've also worked on um, a project to design and build heated bat houses as mitigations um, for replacing um, lost pipistrelle roosts, and the latter part of my research um, career was on uh, sampling and testing bats for EBLV viruses in Scotland, which took us eight years as a major project uh, sponsored by SNH. At the same time as all this, I was doing consultancy part-time. I was one of the first consultants in Scotland. And I did that full-time from about 2010 until I retired two years ago and found some very interesting projects in that too. So it's been an amazing life with that. I was going to say,
0: so only a a small amount of things then, so... (laughs) In 2009, you were the first woman to receive the Pete Guest Awards. How did that feel and, how, and do you think the gender balance in, in Batworkers has been restored now?
2: Well, the first thing I'd say, I was very surprised to win it and I was also very honoured to win it. It didn't actually occur to me at the time that I was the first woman to win it. I was kind of used to being one of the very few women in <laughs> bats in research. But yes, the gender balance has undoubtedly been restored. Women more than hold their own in bat conservation at the moment and we have a very, very worthy winner this year. So yes, I think the answer is, is it definitely has, yeah.
0: And what was it that made you... Write the monograph for the long-eared bats. Where did it come out of?
2: Um, there was a colleague actually who was asked to write one on pipistrels and, for some reason, turned it down. But said, "Oh, if you want a good one on brown long-eared ba- or long-eared bats, just go and ask Sue Swift." <laughs> um, so I was sort of trapped into doing it. Um, at the time, I had a lot of other things in my life and didn't realise how long a bat- book would take. But I'm really glad I did it in that uh, it pulled together all the research at the time. It was fascinating to write and uh, it's an achievement.
0: And it's something that's still referred to now. I mean, I've got a copy of myself and I still refer to it even now. I read
2: it actually before this podcast. I hadn't read it for years. (laughs) And uh, it still holds up remarkably well. So, yes, I'm I'm quite proud of that.
0: And just in a bit of a crash course, which I know is difficult (laughs) in the time we've got. But can you just tell us a bit more about the ecology of long-eared bats?
2: Well... I've written down just a few things because, as I say, you could spend a lifetime on this. Um, They're small bats. In case of um, brown long-eared bats, they're relatively common and widespread in Britain. They live in houses. They're one of the most recognizable species and the best known to the public. They live in small colonies. They fly slowly. They have huge ears. They forage by gleaning, mainly in woodland. They use their big ears to listen for prey sounds. They echolocate very quietly which makes it difficult to pick them up on bat detectors. They mate in autumn and winter. They hibernate in trees, buildings and caves. They produce one young a year and the young learn to fly in the roost. Although our two British species are very similar to look at, they have noticeable differences in their ecology and behaviour, which makes them fascinating to learn. They also do this um, speciation. There's lots of different now, uh, the more we see of genet- genetics, the more we realise how many different species of long eareds there are, which is another story altogether, but fascinating.
0: And you've mentioned gleaning a couple of times now. Just for listeners at home who don't know what that is, can you just quickly explain that for us?
2: Gleaning is taking um, prey at rest from surfaces rather than catching it aerially. So they could be crawling along the ground and picking it up or hovering above trees and picking it up or foraging right in among the bushes and just grabbing insects off the vegetation. You need to be able to fly slowly to do it, obviously, and you need to be able to detect the prey, which is the really interesting thing and in clutter.
0: And that's why they've got such wide um, wing membranes, isn't it? So they can actually yes, slow down. Yes, indeed. They
2: have low, low wing loading and uh, they, they can hover and they fly very slowly, which you can only do if you've got very broad wings.
0: And something that's quite typical of finding long-eared roosts is finding evidence of their feeding perches. Um, what moth species is so big that long-ears need to hang up and eat it? <laughs>
2: Well, I was actually thinking about that, and when you're an 8-gram bat, most moth species are quite big. Your average noctuid moth, which is what a lot of the ones we get, certainly up here are, weighs between 100 and 150 milligrams. Now, that to an 8-gram bat is roughly equivalent to you having to, at full pelt, catch a live chicken, catch it, kill it, and eat it. So It's not surprising they use the, they use these. Also, moths tend to be quite physically big. Therefore, they need their thumbs to 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 process it, to manipulate it, to get the the nasty chewy bits off. Which is why they use these. They're not they're not all moths by any means. I mean, you tend to notice things like large yellow underwings um, because they tend to be in heaps. But in fact, if you look in a, under a perch, you'll find a lot of other things. I found. Um, remains of a lot of things like small chafer beetles Mm -hmm. which they trim the 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 elytra and the legs off um, even large lace wings and a variety of other moths as well so they 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 take quite all probably most of their larger prey to these little perches which are often in a porch or a barn or something somewhere they can get in easily and they also use them to have a little rest and a groom and maybe you know just think what they're doing
0: the wings that we're seeing are only those that they're taking bats to the, to the feeding perch. Presumably they're eating a whole range of other species as well that we Ex- don't get. So
2: exactly. Eat. Early studies way back in the 20s, um, dietary studies on these bats were entirely done through feeding perches, which led to the sort of the myth, if you like, that they are totally moth specialists. But in fact, once we started doing faecal analysis on them, we find they eat a large range of, of insects, they they tend to eat about 40% moths, brown long eareds, but they'll also eat a, a wide variety of things: flies, crane flies, earwigs, uh, spiders, and apiliones, things like that. So yes, which you don't get under the the the, uh, the, the perches.
0: And you said in your book it would seem logical to assume that brown long-eareds are brown and grey ears are grey, but it's not that simple, is it? No,
2: it's never that simple, uh. is it? Um, brown, Young brown long-eareds have a sooty grey colour and they stay grey for about a year, and there's a huge variation in it. Um, so telling one from the other is really quite, quite a, a problem, but there are, there are factors you can use, and the experts on grey long-eareds tell me that the best ways to do it is not to look at the, the hair colour, but to look at the, the banding along the hairs. So you blow gently on the dorsal fur of the back of the bat and the grey long ears tend to be universally dark grey. Okay. Whereas the brown long ears have sort of stripy zones, got a, a pale zone and then a darker one and then a pale one. That's a good way to tell them. Face colour is much more reliable than hair colour. So if it's if your bat's got a dark brown, almost black face, it's probably a grey long-eared. If it's got a gr- browny pink face, it's a, br- it's a brown long-eared. Tragus shape is very distinctive, whereas it's long and thin in the brown long-eared. It's straight in the, at the front, and then with a distinct convex loop in the grey long-eared. And the final one is that brown long-eareds are slightly smaller bats, although there's a lot of overlap. But they have long, thin thumbs. So the way to do it is to measure the thumb length, measure the forearm length, and then take the ratio. Um, it's much higher in brown long-eared bats, and that separates them completely. If anyone ever has to do it, it's about 19% in brown long-eareds and 14 in greys. And that takes account of the individual size variation in bats as well.
0: And why are the ears of long ears so large? (laughs)
2: Just very briefly for those who don't know about the evolutionary arms race. Initially, when there were no no mammals, um, insects were deaf because they didn't have to hear. Then in the ear scene, when the bats came along... They de- began to develop, to develop these hearing organs, which aren't ears as we imagine them. They can be anywhere, on a palp or on a wing or something. The moth species which have them are the Notodontidae, the Noctuidae, Geometridae, Arcteidae, and Pyralidae. So quite a, a range of, uh, of moth species have these hearing organs. Um, green lacewings have got them, plus some beet- beetles, including some tiger beetles, dung beetles, and in the tropics, mantises, field crickets, and some Hemipteran bugs. Now, what happens is that um, the reason long-eared bats' ears are so big, it's been found that they act as an acoustic horn and they magnify sounds at low frequencies. And the best frequency that a long-eared bat's ear can detect and magnify is 12 kilohertz, which is exactly the frequency at which a moth's wings flutter. So because the moths can hear the bats coming, what these bats have done is they echolocate very, very quietly anyway. So they can actually just drop it almost to the point where they can't hear themselves and then they just listen for the fluttering sounds and because they're so so maneuverable so easy they can get right down in among it they can just go in i've even seen them walking along the ground grabbing moths and that that's why they're one of the few bats in britain that actually can can um, specialize on moths and moths are good they're juicy they're soft they're quite easy to catch and importantly they fly all night so you're not restrained like a pipistrelle is by the dusk and dawn insect beaks
0: and what about the mating strategies? There's this idea that long-eared bats do swarm in the autumn, but when we're doing the studies, we're finding that actually the most common species are naturas and yet we know yes. that long-ears are the second most common species, so it doesn't, mm-hmm. the numbers don't seem to stack up.
2: There is some evidence um, that this is one of the main differences between the two species, that... Uh, um, I'll, look, I'll look at the grey long-eareds first, which are quite aggressive bats, and they tend to mate in the autumn only and in the, in the nursery roosts. You tend to get one male to a group of females. So it looks like what well, they're actually doing a classic female resource strategy. One male is guarding these females. Um, but the, gray, the brown long-eared bats have a different way of doing it. And because they mate all in the autumn and all winter, they mate intermittently all winter, a male couldn't guard all the females. Therefore, it looks like they have a random promiscuous mating system. But it seems to be less at swarming sites and more taking place in the maternity roost okay. right at the end of the summer. So they do swarm, but probably not in the sites where you're looking for them, which is where the myotis bats swarm.
0: In the 20 years <laughs> since your monograph on ears was published, several new exciting oh. research techniques have been developed, such as cheap DNA testing, full-spectrum detectors, radio tags, the thermal imaging stuff we've just seen in the last session... If you could have had just one of today's techniques back then, which one would you choose and why?
2: Well, I was going to say really good radio tags for some of my early work, but we saw a brilliant talk this morning on high-definition thermal imaging. I would have loved to have had that. Um, yeah, radio tags, I think, would have been, would have been fantastic. Um, on the other hand improvements in DNA analysis now looks as though my particular skill in faecal analysis is going to be redundant. We can simply put the droppings through a, through a machine and it'll tell us exactly what it ate. So the future is very bright and we're going to find out a lot more.
0: And what do we know now about long-eared bats that we didn't know 20 years ago and what has surprised you most?
2: I think the most interesting and probably surprising feature is their ability to produce all these sibling species. Um, What looked like one uh, long-eared species in the 50s in in, in the whole of Europe is now about five or six because every time they do more DNA, they find that there are more sibling species and that they're speciating fantastic. I think that's an amazing thing to find out and somewhere we're going.
0: Sue, that's been a fascinating insight. Thank you very much. Thanks
2: very much. I enjoyed it.
0: So it's the afternoon session here at the conference and I've grabbed a few minutes with Tracy Jolliffe. Tracy, what what, what is your background in rabies or medicine what's your job at the moment
3: um I originally started as a veterinary nurse and I did that for quite some time and then went to university as a mature student and retrained as a microbiologist so I've done both bacteriology and virology and I've also done three years in the rabies research labs down in Weybridge
0: so first question what is rabies
3: uh, rabies is a viral infection. Um, it's been around for a long time. We've got references going back thousands of years to what was probably rabies infections, although it's not named as such. Um, and viruses, the difference between viruses and bacteria is that viruses are true parasites. They have to actually infect cells in order to replicate, whereas bacteria are free living. Uh, organisms and they can live and replicate on um, all sorts of innate objects. They don't need human or animal cells.
0: And what's the history of rabies in bats?
3: Rabies has probably been in bats for thousands and thousands of years. Um, nobody's going to be uh, completely sure about that. Um, in terms of bats in the UK, the first bat we had with rabies was a dorbentons on the south coast and that was back in the mid 80s and first of all we thought it was probably just a migrant you know it'd come over either assisted passage on a ship or just flown the short distance over the channel so we weren't too worried about it but then a few years later we found a juvenile Dorbentons in lancashire and that was when we realized that we actually had it endemic in some of our bats
0: and which species have been confirmed to have it so far
3: In the UK, it's primarily Dorbenton's, that's where most of the cases are, and recently we've had a few cases in Serotines on the south coast.
0: We hear about European bat lesivirus type 1 and type 2. What's the difference between type 1 and 2?
3: It's really just a genetic variation. Um, there are 18 different species of um, rabies virus uh, and they split into different groups and European bat lyssavirus 1 and 2 are both fairly closely related to classical rabies, which is genotype 1.
0: As bat workers, we hear about having uh, pre-exposure vaccinations as being important, but that guidance is slightly changing with Public Health England at the moment. Are gloves still the best? first and foreline of defense
3: absolutely um there's something called a chain of infection that all infections um follow and there have to be all these different things in place in order to one infection go from one organism to another and, and what we're worried about is from a bat to a human um so you just have to break that chain of infection at one point and the easiest way to not get rabies is not get bitten so learning how to handle bats correctly is very important and wearing gloves because it doesn't matter what your vaccine's vaccination status is. If you're not going to get bitten, then you're not going to get rabies. It's as simple as that.
0: And why is it that bats can cope with the virus? Um, and are there any cases of humans having survived rabies exposure without vaccination?
3: Um, we think that bats are the original host for rabies. And one of the reasons is probably, although it's never been confirmed, is that bats are a very ancient Um, group of animals. They've been around in their current form for a very long time so we think that they've just evolved to live with the viruses um, because they are renowned for carrying lots of different viruses that they cope with fine but if they spill over into other species can cause quite serious problems.
0: Obviously rabies doesn't get a great press given the severity of the consequences of it going undetected in humans. As bat workers, is there anything that we can do to improve the image of bats having rabies?
3: Um, I think we just need to supply the facts to people. I mean, rabies is a huge problem globally, um, but 99% of rabies cases across the world are from dogs. So that is the huge reservoir that, that we need to be concerned about from a global point of view. Um, so rabies in terms of bats it's a very small percentage of one or two species in the UK so I think we need to emphasize that it's even if you come across that species the chance of them having rabies is still going to be very small Um, and just emphasize the fact that we do take precautions you know there is an effective vaccine um, and wearing gloves and correct handling is is going to prevent people from being exposed in the first place.
0: Great stuff. Tracy thank you very much. My thanks to Liz, Sue and Tracy for taking time out of the conference last year to come on the show. The various links to their social media accounts are in the show notes. And the 2021 Scottish Bat Conference is taking place online on Saturday the 6th of March. And bookings for that event are now open on the BCT website. And again, the link is in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, why not share with us what your favourite ever encounter with a long-eared bat has been by using the hashtag BatChat. That's it for this episode, but we will be back in two weeks' time in the new year with the Chief Exec of the Bat Conservation Trust, Kit Stoner, who will be revealing what it's like to run BCT as an organisation and will also be giving us the latest news on the status of the British Bat Survey, an upcoming nationwide project, so don't miss it. Everyone here at the Bat Conservation Trust wishes you all the very best for the festive period, whatever you're doing this year, and we look forward to sharing more stories with you from the world of bats in the new year. What did you think of this episode? If you can please leave a quick comment about the show in the ratings and review section, we'd really appreciate it. It helps other listeners to discover our podcast.